Well, athletes can sometimes have a strange reaction to victory. Um, Some call it the morning after sickness. Um, In preaching, we call it the Monday morning blues. Um, An Olympic gymnast who has trained for 15 years gets to this final moment, and the day of a gold medal performance is incredible, but the day after they feel oddly depressed. Or you've got athletes like Michael Phelps who are at the absolute top of their sport, who struggle with depression. An Olympic athlete can can train 4,990 hours between Olympics. That's two hours a day, twice a day, six days a week for four years. Almost 5,000 hours going into something that can be determined in a fraction of a second. Victory or loss in just a split second. And so defeat, of course, you can imagine, could be devastating. But victory has a bitter edge as well. And then you've got other bitter feelings that, that prevail in personal disputes. When you get into an argument with somebody and and you win that argument, do you feel victorious? Or maybe you are in a a crucial court case and and you have this sympathy after you've won for the one that you've defeated. Or or a politician waving to the the cheering crowd who have been supportive but, but inwardly cringes at the bruises that have been suffered both to themselves and to their opponents. There is this sense that victory is is great, but there is a bitterness to victory as well. And so one of these bittersweet states uh, may have been plaguing the Apostle Paul as he is writing 2 Corinthians. As, As he's writing this letter to this church, this second letter, He's won a great victory in convincing the Corinthians to come to his side. He's he's convinced them uh, that, that they should follow Christ. His spirit is uplifted when Titus brings him the news of their support. His first letter was a huge personal risk, but it pays off. And then this second letter spontaneously breaks into these moments of praise and thanksgiving. But at the same time, there are these moments where Paul is is more open with his frustrations than any of his other writings. He gives a very quick greeting. And then in his first few lines says, we despaired even of life. Now what a depressed statement is that. We despaired even of life. And there's numerous references that pop up through 2 Corinthians where where he is, is being very vulnerable and honest. In many ways, these personal references read more like a diary than it does a formal letter. And where 1 Corinthians really helps analyze the problems that are going on in the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians reveals more of the problems that Paul is dealing with himself and the things that he's wrestling with. And so he makes himself very vulnerable and opens this window into his inner soul. We're seeing his thoughts as he reflects on this church that he has planted. 
And so the last several weeks we have been uh, spending time in, in a few chapters of 2 Corinthians, looking at chapters 4, 5, and a little bit of 6. And so today we are going to kind of do a review and start back at the beginning of 2 Corinthians. And we're going to read through this letter that Paul sends to the Corinthian church. This heart that is troubled in some way. Looking at this church and longing for this church to to be what he knows it can be. And so we're going to read through uh, starting in 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 1. Here is his very brief introduction. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Compared to some of Paul's other introductions, this one is brief and not that personal. It says, Paul is writing to the church, grace and peace. And then he says, praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we're distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you a patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. We don't don't want you to be uninformed about the troubles that we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. It's a pretty low spot. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. As you help us by your prayers, then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. Now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened the door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I, had, I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and I went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ 
triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ. The pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, to those who oppose us, we're an aroma that brings death. To the other, we're an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? Because unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need like some letters of recommendation to you? You yourselves are our letter written on our hearts, known and ready, read by everyone. You show that, that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry. The result of our ministry, written not with the ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of a human heart. And such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we're competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He's made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And so if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved on letters of stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We're not like Moses, who would, would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, the veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, we're being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. 
Therefore, since, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, this is, this is what we have, we do not lose hearts. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show, to show that this all-surpassing power is from God. It's not from us. We're hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So that, this, that his life may also re- be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It's written, I believe, therefore I have spoken. Since we have the same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All, All of this is for your benefit. All of this is for your benefit, so that the the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. So don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Though outwardly we're, we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles, they're achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what we can see, but what's unseen. 
Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For, for while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that, that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who's, who's fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who's given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. And so we're always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are, are confident and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we're at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So since then, we, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God. And I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than in what is in the hearts. If we're out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we're in our right minds, it's for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And, and, we di and he died for all and those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and gave us this ministry of reconciliation. That, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And, and he has committed to us 
the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's co-workers, we are urging you, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you, and in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. And so as we reflect on these words of Paul, I'd like for us to move to the table. Because now is the day of salvation. Now is the time of God's favor. And so if you're serving uh, at, at the table this morning, if you can go ahead and head back and um, get the trays ready. As Paul gives us this picture of, of the difference between the seen and the unseen, the, the earthly and the heavenly, we see his gift of Christ to us. That we no longer see things from a worldly point of view. Because of who Christ is and what he's done in his death, burial, and resurrection, we're able to see from a heavenly point of view. And everything changes.